0: From Cinema I'm John Agroni. This is The Minute Play. This minute, Warner Media has announced an unprecedented move. In 2021, 17 of their major motion pictures will be available on their streaming service, HBO Max, the same day they will go to theaters. My colleague, Abiel Chessy, explains. It's 9.36 a.m. Pacific Time on a Sunday, and it's cloudy outside, and I don't like it.
1: Hey, sorry, you caught me in the middle of watering my 14 plants. Phew, I'm glad you're editing all this out, you know, since it doesn't really serve any purpose whatsoever.
0: Abby, tell me about this reporting about Warner Brothers that you sent me via WhatsApp a few days ago, but I forgot to read it even though I replied, LOL.
1: There's this new normal we're finding ourselves in where streaming services are largely becoming the preferred entertainment of most Americans.
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: We have Netflix, we have Disney Plus, and all these other streaming services that are beginning to look a lot like cable.
0: Oh, yeah. I I hate cable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, some of the rules changed earlier this year to allow movies to hit these services a lot closer to the actual theatrical release window. Hold on. Sorry.
0: I hate to interrupt, but I actually don't mind. I have no idea what you just said.
1: Before 2020, movie theaters had what was called an exclusivity window of 90 days. So only they could show these new movies in that time before the movie studios, like Disney and Warner Brothers, could make that movie available for rental or even streaming. Is that simple enough for you? Do you also need a blanket?
0: That would be really nice, actually.
1: So, cut to today, where we're seeing an uncertain year ahead for Warner Brothers, who's had to delay releasing some of their biggest movies of the year. So it wasn't too long ago that they announced they'd be releasing Wonder Woman 1984, what was previously supposed to be their big summer blockbuster of the year, on Christmas Day. So, just a couple of weeks from now. But in addition to being shown in theaters, Wonder Woman 1984 will also be available to watch for 30 days on HBO Max. That's really fascinating. So, what
0: is HBO Max?
1: Well, HBO stands for Home Box Office. Incredible. And Max is a euphemism for having a lot of, if not all of, something.
0: Slow down, actually.
1: Warner Media wants this streaming service to reach the heights of Netflix and Disney+. They've poured a lot of money into it over the last few years, but as of 2020, they haven't seen a lot of subscribers added at, at all. Even many customers of HBO who could activate their HBO Max subscription for free haven't yet done so. This move to bring massive blockbusters with hundreds of millions of dollars in budgets, movies like Dune, the next Matrix sequel, and so on, straight to the streaming service is essentially a gambit. It could be what saves WarnerMedia's struggling streaming service. You know, Abby,
0: when I was growing up, my parents taught me this thing about what they called consequences. They'd slap my hand and say, no, Jonathan, you can't just watch Lloyd in space every single night. You'll start to develop unrealistic expectations for human interplanetary travel. What's your response to that?
1: Well, I guess the consequences for what Warner Media is doing here will largely affect the theatrical experience as we know it. Abby, thank you. No problem. No, stop. Really. Thank you. Uh, you're not welcome.
0: Barry real good is a middle-aged projectionist based out of a town so remote, I won't even bother mentioning it. Which is the town's fault, really, for not bordering any sort of body of water I can understand. Barry, how do you feel about this new future of the cinema, where streaming services can start showing theatrical movies for up to 30 days, Essentially, making your job even more obsolete than it already was. Uh,
2: sorry, who are you?
0: I'm John Negroni. This is the Minutely.
2: Oh, uh, yeah, well, I don't really like what this will do to the theaters, like mine. I'll tell you that much.
0: Yes, yes, please. Keep telling me things.
2: So, apparently they're saying this is just for one year, and then after that, all these movies are on the service for something like 30 days. They've only been in theaters, but... I can't help but feel like this is the beginning of the end for our theater business.
0: Barry, this is really fascinating. And can I just say, you're a very fascinating person. I don't tell you that enough, really. Are you
2: subscribed to HBO Max? Uh, well, no, I haven't even heard of it until you just sent me that text about all this that's happening. The low you sent right after was particularly cruel, i have to be honest. Well, Barry, HBO stands for Home box office. and well, Yeah, I know that.
0: And so, Barry, I can't help but wonder if this was inevitable. With so many people using streaming services instead of going to the movie theater, do you think there's anything you could have done to prevent all this?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, not unless you have a time machine.
0: I do. It's in my Tesla. We can go get it.
2: Now, I don't want to make it sound like I'm complaining. I just think people will try to find any excuse they can to not go outside and do things. Even before coronavirus started, the concessions are way too expensive. Other people are rude. Yada, yada, yada. Some theaters, though, especially mine. We work really hard to make these a special place. And I would just hate to lose all that because, hey, are you trying to take a selfie with me right now? Barry, thank you. Well, thanks for having me.
0: No, Barry, shut up. Thank you.
2: Uh, 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 okay, uh.
0: I mean it. Just, thank you. Here's what else you need to know right this minute. When I was 13, I convinced my parents to let me watch Alexander on the big screen. They didn't know it at the time, but that was the day I became a pretentious film critic. The Minutely is produced by computer software that I have no real control or understanding over. It was written by very random stream of consciousness that has no bearing in anything resembling informational value or an actual point. Special thanks to Michael Barbaro, who asked us personally to do this despite our reservations. And special thanks to Barry, a hometown hero. Welcome once again to cinemaholics from the bay area i am john agroni editor-in-chief of cinemaholics from pittsburgh pennsylvania give your hands up for the pop culture writer for cinema blend you all know him he reviews films for cinemaholics.com it's will ashton oh well thank you very much from kansas city she is the film editor for the pitch with bylines at slash film crooked marquee Roger and so many more it's abby ol hello i wish i could think of a good <laughs> i wish i could think of a good mank pun sorry <laughs> well thanks for coming you can find more episodes of cinemaholics including our full archive on cinemaholics.com and inclu- including including written reviews you could write into the show anytime by sending us an email we love hearing from all of you cinemahawkspodcast at gmail.com and if you would like to support us, there are two main ways to do Actually, there's three main ways, to be totally honest. Um, one of the first and easiest ways is to become a patron. Uh, just go to patreon.com cinemaholics and donate to the show. Always appreciate your support there. You can check out our merch page on cinemaholics.com and you can get yourself some sweet, sweet merch right on time for the holidays. Hoodies, shirts, mugs, shot glasses, you know the drill. And last, uh, if you uh, don't have financial means, no sweat. Just give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we super appreciate your feedback on there. It definitely helps us get the word out on the show. ton of off-topics to get to. Uh, you know, We, we kind of started this week thinking we were going to be reviewing a ton of movies, but we found a nice way to balance it out. So we're going to be pushing some films like Red, White, and Blue, Wolfwalkers to next week. And uh, I think that's going to work out because we'll be able to focus and dig in deep on the reviews we have for you all. This week. But the nice thing is, we have plenty of off topics to get to. Let's get started right away. First up, Extra Milestone, our spin off podcast where uh, Sam Noland and a rotating list of guests talk about classic films that are celebrating an anniversary since their release. Awesome show. We're kind of getting up to our two year anniversary itself of Extra Milestone, which is exciting. And this past week, Sam and guest Guy Simmons. They talked about one of my favorite movies of all time, Toy Story, which came out in 1995. So it is now celebrating 25 years since its release. And they also talked about Unbreakable, the M. Night Shyamalan sophomore follow-up. A lot of people say Unbreakable is probably his best film or second best film. And I find it pretty easy to agree with that sentiment. Uh, That film came out in 2000. So it's actually the second extra milestone that they are covering that has come out in the 21st century. This is the second one after How to Train Your Dragon. So Unbreakable celebrating 20 years, of course. It's a great milestone episode. Definitely check it out. We have another special Cinemaholics thing coming up. We're calling the Cinemaholics Holiday Special. And so this is a fun new thing that we're doing to kind of ring in the holidays. We're going to be talking about uh, some Christmas movies and things like that. So keep an ear out for that holiday special coming up right before the Christmas, uh, December 25th day. And then finally, we have uh, virtual cinema shout outs. Uh, so this is something we wanna start doing more often where we shout out our local virtual cinemas. And by virtual cinemas, we mean these are actually like real theaters. Like you, you know, before the pandemic, you could go to these theaters and you could enjoy them and everything. But these are theaters that are offering virtual screenings to stay afloat so people can support them. And all three of us have some virtual cinemas slash real cinemas that we want to shout out. Uh, Will, why don't you go first? Because last week I mentioned it on the show, one of them, but there's another one you want to uh, mention here.
2: Yeah. um, So um, I usually work uh, part-time at a theater called the Harris Theater, which has been uh, not operating in person since the pandemic happened. And so I haven't had a chance to return, but um, I would definitely recommend if listeners want to support that theater, they have some virtual cinema selections that are available right now. Um, You can check their website. uh, They're through the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust if you need a little bit more uh, uh, information about them. But yeah, they definitely have quite a few stream of films uh, coming in through that. They also had their uh, film festival through their virtual cinema option recently. So I would definitely recommend checking out their slate of films.
0: Awesome. Yes. Be sure to do that. And Abby Olshasey, you mentioned a cinema last week. and you said that there's a couple in the area. do you Which one do you want to talk about?
1: Yeah. um, so Screenland Armour uh, is the one that I mentioned last week, And I uh, have particularly been enjoying their selections for uh, for virtual cinema because they uh, they do a lot of really good uh, showcasing of like weird cult and genre movies. So like you can find the twentieth century, which we talked about last week, uh, currently streaming on their website. Uh, also the, uh, indie horror movie 12 hour shift that got a lot of, uh, of love from the, uh, the horror fan community. So like some bigger and, and smaller movies alike. Um, also, uh, I thought I would shout out Liberty Hall in, uh, in Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, they're, they've been around forever and, uh, have a lot of really cool stuff going on, on, uh, on their website currently that you can, uh, that you can rent online, uh, which includes, uh, John Lewis, good trouble and, uh, the Quentin Depew movie deerskin. Um, so lots of great indie stuff that you can support online that also kind of supports, um, venerable cultural institutions in, uh, in Kansas city and Lawrence.
0: Nice. I remember, Will, you were a fan of deerskin, no?
2: Yeah, I actually watched it on my birthday as a little treat for myself. And I was a big fan of that for sure. All right. Uh, My virtual
0: cinema, I want to shout out is the Roxy. A lot of listeners already know at this point, I've brought it up so many times. I love Roxy. And uh, yeah, I think I think um, I forget the details on yours, but Roxy's a lot is a lot like these virtual cinemas where 50% of your ticket will go to support the Roxy so that when the pandemic is over, it'll be able to come back and just be a real treat for the neighborhood. And yeah, similar to you all, they're showing a lot of really cool things. Um, Croc of Gold is a new film that they're uh, starting as of this weekend that uh, I've heard interesting things about. And they have a new... Um, Uh, A new thing called uh, Mare, which I don't know too much about, but I was kind of like interested uh, uh, that it was kind of like, I hadn't seen it like pop up anywhere else. And then yeah, you can watch all kinds of other things. They have like Zappa playing right now. You can watch, uh, you can watch Coded Bias, which is something that uh, we've just sort of missed. I think we were I wanted to talk about it a couple of weeks ago because we had a screener, but I I just haven't gotten to it. And then um, yeah, also 20th Century City Hall, plenty of stuff to check out on the Roxy, and that's a an iconic San Francisco theater. It's cl- easily one of my favorites, and um, I know I know some of our listeners actually have supported the Roxy and let me know, and uh, it means a lot because it's a really special place, and so. Um, All of these theaters, you should be sure to check out. And sorry, real quick, I got to say, I forgot to mention um, there is a cat film festival and a dog film festival Mm. (laughs) uh, playing in New York that you should look into um, that you can watch actually through the Roxy. So if you're interested in that, it's kind of funny. You should check it out.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I watched um, Feels Good Man. I think we covered that on the show through the Roxy virtual. That's right. Yeah. And uh, I definitely would recommend it from that experience. So uh, I would second that recommendation for sure.
0: Before we move on, we actually have a listener who uh, chimed in as well with their own virtual cinema. So we wanna shout out theirs. Uh, so this is from a commenter who goes by Chauncey. And I know Chauncey's commented a bunch of times. So Chauncey said, I love that you started the show this week with some virtual cinema shout outs. I'd love to add my own local theater out here in Vancouver. It's called the Cinematheque. I'm not, this is John. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly cause I'm not French and this is like Canadian. So uh, it's spelled for those of you listening. Uh, cinema, the normal the typical way. Uh, cinema t h e q u e. So I think I think you say like cinema tech, but I'm not sure. Uh, so back to Chauncey. It's a true staple for our community. In addition to some indie films currently available for online viewing, they also have a fantastic selection of classics. In fact, right now they have several great Fellini films like Roma and the White Sheik. If any fellow holics out there are looking for a virtual film festival, they should definitely look it up. So again, that is the Cinematheque. And thank you, Chauncey, for shouting that out. Any other listeners, if there's one in, in your local area, we'd love to shout out your your virtual cinema and spread the word around. Because uh, we're, I know I'm always looking for virtual cinemas to check out, honestly.
2: Yeah, I was just going to mention, since you two mentioned um, examples of what they're playing at your virtual cinemas, I was just going to mention that right now at the Harris, they're showing um, the New York International Children's Film Festival's films. So I guess like a collection of short films from there, so that's a way you can check out there and looks like some nice. fun and exciting titles for sure
0: awesome okay um real quick just want to mention um there's a few movies that I caught up on this past week I'm not gonna get into them really um uh, two of them are lover's rock so I saw that and yeah I, I re-listened to will Abby your conversation about it this is the the small acts like the second one and I really liked it I, th- I think I'm like a closer to where Abby is on it I'm like I'm kind of probably like a B plus, like pretty solid B plus on it. I think it's really solid and I, I love the runtime. I've been listening to silly games all week. Um, so yeah, if any listeners are on the fence about Lovers Rock, I think they should seek it out because it's, it's really a great watch. And then um, I saw Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which we're going to talk about on the show at a future date. And I, I've also been catching up on some new shows. I watched the entirety of the Saved by the Bell first season, the reboot, which is on Peacock. And I checked out the first three episodes of Flight Attendant. I don't know if you've heard about Flight Attendant. It's on HBO Max. Um, HBO stands for um, Home Box Office, and Max is a euphemism for anyway. So both of those are out. And uh, Abby, will have either of you looked into Flight Attendant or heard about it yet?
1: I have heard about Flight Attendant. I haven't looked into it yet, but I'm I'm really curious about it. I think I had watched the trailer at one point and I thought it looked pretty fun.
0: It's wild, and I I'm really like it's a fun like shaping to be a guilty pleasure kind of show and it's i think uh berlanti is like a producer executive producer or something and you can tell but this is like way more fun than i think some of his cw stuff that he does it's really cool
1: i mean some of his cw stuff is pretty fun too but like in a it is this is
0: this is edgier and slightly less campy the balance is a little different and it's like kaylee cuoco rosie perez
2: i'm super into it yeah, and um yeah, I saw an article, I, I forget who wrote it, but they're championing her performance and they're kind of saying like have we been like sitting on this actress cuz you know she's been doing the sitcom that's been, you know, largely mediocre for 10 plus years and it's like okay, mm. here's finally a chance or well, I'm mean, sorry if that offends any Big Bang Theory fans, but um uh yeah, I mean, you know, just the fact that she's been kind of uh in this kind of so-so sitcom for a while and then now she's coming out and proving her dramatic talent is certainly very exciting to see, but she did, um, the Harley Quinn show too. Right. She has that on HBO max as well. Yeah.
0: As as a voice role. But no, that's, that is totally spot on. Like watching this, I have been not surprised. Like I knew she was a good actress. I mean, like I remember eight simple rules and I, I never thought she was bad or anything. I think she's actually a really charismatic, energetic performer, but yeah, flight attendant really is like where she's like, you can tell she's into this show. Um, and then the saved by the bell reboot, I think is really fun. And I laughed a bunch and, uh, I texted will like a ton of quotes from it out of context, just because that's what I do. Um, uh, that said, I wanted to plug, um, you know, there, there are times like this where I want to talk more about TV stuff, but sometimes we get complaints. People are like, look, just, just get to the movies. Okay. Like that's what we're here for. It's cinema holics, not, not TV holics. And that's cool. I get that. Um, so we want to start doing a new thing on YouTube that, uh, we're going to be testing out like a little pilot program this week. Uh, where i'm going to be doing a live stream of my thoughts on some of these shows and some like larger cinemaholics things in general and so i'm going to get into more detail on the saved by the bell thing flight attendant anything else that i've been watching through a youtube live stream so we don't have all the details 100 figured out it's probably just going to be me uh most weeks but we want to start trying to do this like just to squeeze in some stuff we don't have time for on the main show but yeah if you're curious about that subscribe to our youtube channel uh, it's just Cinemaholics and it's in the show notes and you'll get like a notification when we're going live and all of that. It should be a lot of fun. I'm actually really excited about this because there's a ton of stuff that I I want to get into. And if people tune in and can ask questions and stuff, that could be fun. But I don't know if that's going to happen. I know a lot of our listeners are uh, uh, very audio, like listen to us on their commute. So I don't know if the live stream is going to be their jam, but hopefully we'll get some new listeners and that'll be fun too. But that's going to be coming out soon. I'm um, thinking about calling it the big stream. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Uh, Will, you've caught up with a couple of things, um, this past week and then something that you were thinking about talking about last week, but I, I forbade you. I told you, no, the the listeners can't handle this, but I'm feeling a little bit jollier this week. So go ahead.
2: Sure. Um, well, first I just want, to, since we're talking about TV, I want to talk about a show I've been watching this past week, which is the docu-series, how to with John Wilson. This is produced, um, executive produced by Nathan Fielder and, um, it's I've been describing it to you, John, as like basically the bizarre cousin of Joe Parra talks with you, and then Nathan Fielder show Nathan for you. Uh, both of which I've been watching throughout this uh, quarantine and and really enjoy. Actually, I was watching um, Joe Parra before that, but uh, throughout the year, they've they've definitely been a source of uh, joy and and they've been a great. Uh, Way to get away from the outside world, and I would say that's certainly the case with How to with John Wilson, which is only six episodes, um, and they're all half an hour each, so it's a pretty quick watch. I've seen all but the finale so far, and uh, each episode basically just follows our lead uh, documentarian John Wilson as he gives kind of general life advice about random things. Uh, for instance uh he talks about like small talk in the first episode In the second episode he's talking about scaffolding throughout new york this is a very new york based show and uh basically he just films everything it seems like and then he just kind of splices all the footage together to kind of make these bizarre kind of personal essays that start off with a very simple and kind of concrete topic but in a kind of typical nathan fielder fashion they kind of balloon and avalanche into like these very bizarre uh very personal and then very like uh philosophical conversations about life and uh, like one's place in the universe is a 30 something in New York City. And uh, it's easily some of my favorite filmmaking of this past year. It's, it's given me a lot of laughs. And it's also just a just a really well done show for what it's trying to do. And I've been trying to get John to watch it as well. Because I know he likes uh, Nathan Fielder stuff a lot. And I think he's really going to enjoy this as well. Whether I get him to do it or not, we'll have to find out. But if he don't <laughs> well, watch it, I, or, yeah.
0: I mean, if this live stream thing takes off, I'll need something else to watch. There you go. Sure.
2: But um, if he doesn't watch it, I would definitely recommend to our listeners, especially if you're a big fan of Nathan Fielder and Joe Parra, because it does. And even though Joe, Joe Parra is not involved with this, it does feel like his style. Um, and I, I think it's really a nice little uh, marriage of the two. So I've been trying to get a lot of people to watch it. And it's got a lot of really great reviews. It seems like people are finding it like I am this past month or so. So that's how to with John Wilson. It's currently streaming. Yeah. Abby, you're you're planning to check it out too, right?
1: I am, yeah. I've I've been hearing really good things about this. I've also been hearing good things about the Save by the Bell reboot. So yeah, I've got some some TV to catch up on.
0: Yeah, and well, you're gonna sorry, I cut you off where you're gonna say where you can stream this. <laughs>
2: oh, no, no, <laughs> I was all. just gonna say, um, similar to the flight attendant and a few other shows we mentioned, it's on HBO Max right now. So if you want to check yeah, it out, crazy. there it is. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Remind me, what uh what do, what is HBO Max? What does that stand for?
0: <laughs> it stands for whole box office. It's like the box office, but all of it. But there's a oh.
1: Yeah. So like, it's, yeah, it's okay. it's got layers. Kind of like a show hole, but like a box office.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it, actually. Uh, also, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air reunion is on there. I forget if I, I mentioned that. I watched that and that was pretty fun. It, it's kind of crazy. Like HBO Max, it's like, what, $15 a month. You get a ton of stuff on there. And like it compared to like Peacock and some of the other things, Disney Plus, like every time I go on
2: HBO Max, I kind of get sucked into it. Are we getting promoted by HBO Max?
0: A little
1: bit.
2: <laughs> no okay not, cool of course. I, I, i'll look um, forward to checking the mail <laughs> yeah well
1: as as soon as they uh uh resolve whatever feud they have with roku i will be happy to check it out on a more regular basis than i do currently
0: that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I think that's in the works. I think that's coming that they're going to be available on there. But
1: I mean, yeah, after that announcement they made this week, it better. Right.
0: Be. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. There's no way they would, you know, announce this without that being at least like really close to happening. Um, I, I'll say too. like Mandalorian uh, has been really killing it lately, like surprisingly. So uh, to the point where this is becoming like what the biggest show right now.
1: It's massive. Yeah. I, I loved the the most recent episode and actually the yeah. the episodes preceding that too. It's been a really strong season. I think they they picked up on a lot of the stuff that needed to be uh amped up a little from season one, which was already pretty strong. So yeah, it's been super fun to watch.
2: Yeah, who would have thought that people love Star Wars?
0: <laughs> well, Star Wars done really well, you know. Yeah, um I, I, I think that like, yeah, this this definitely to me feels like the most fun post like original trilogy stuff we might have ever gotten. I mean, aside from like Last Jedi, like this, this thing is like just endlessly entertaining. It's such a, it's a ton of spectacle. It's you know, I don't tune into the big stream for more of my thoughts on the Mandalorian season. Yeah.
2: Two. I mean, I mean, I, I haven't watched the show, but I mean, I remember when they were announcing the new trilogy, I was like, if there's one filmmaker I'd probably get it's John Favreau because it just seemed like he was the right guy for it. So I'm glad it's working out for him.
0: All right, we have some voicemails to get to. Oh, wait, oh, before we get to uh, voicemails, there's a... Yeah, yeah, the Christmas movie well, that I'm not... Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't jolly about until now.
2: Yeah, well, I'll, I'll try to make this extremely brief because I, I know you don't really want me to dive too far into it. But, uh, yeah, it's still on the uh, top 10 for Atrio, or sorry for Netflix. So, uh, Christmas Chronicles Part 2, I watched that the past week. I didn't get a chance to talk about it then. then. Uh, it's kind of more the same uh, in that the movie itself isn't particularly great, but it does have Kurt Russell playing Santa Claus, which... I mean, it isn't like the best thing in the world, but it, it certainly does help a lot. And this time, uh, Goldie Hawn gets a bigger role as uh, Mrs. Claus. And obviously, you know, it's always nice to see them together because they're such a great couple in real life as well. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think whatever you felt about the first movie, it's not your opinion on this one. Is it going to be too far behind it? I think you're either going to uh, like it about the same, if not maybe a little bit less. But um, yeah, it, it's it's entirely kind of so-so Netflix movie that I just watched. And it's the type of 2000 Nick, uh, Netflix family film that include, includes a long dance scene of Who Let the Dogs Out from Bahaman. So that, that kind of lets you know oh, what wow. its sensibilities are as far as being uh, modern. But in any case, it's Chris Columbus who does a lot of these family-type films, especially around Christmas, as uh, he is known for, like, with Home Alone. But, um, yeah. it's and just first a Harry pretty... Potter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's another Christmas movie. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but only that one. I think some people point that out that like only yeah. the first Harry Potter is a technically a Christmas movie. But in any case, um, yeah, this is like a pretty low C for me. Nothing great. But I, I feel like if you like the first one, you'll probably get something out of this one as well.
0: I thought about checking it out. You know, it's it's that time of year. But, you know, I didn't see the first one and I don't want to get lost. You know, I don't want to get confused. I think that I know there's a lot of heavy lore in the Christmas Chronicles. So
1: I, I will say that I, my parents watched it, um, apart from me and, uh, I believe they have not seen the first one, but it, the second one did get the, uh, Camille Olchesi seal of approval. So I think, I think it's possible for you to watch number two and enjoy it still on its own.
0: Sounds like it's been added to the Olchesi coat of arms.
1: Uh, I I don't know if I'd go that far, but it's, you know, it's okay. (laughs) It got an okay, it got an okay rating.
2: Uh, I don't want to make it seem like uh, Kurt Russell like half sassed this thing because he apparently made a whole language for the elves to speak so it'd be more authentic, a la *Pasha the Christ*. His it's like, words, calm so, down Tolkien. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, no, I just I I think that just kind of sums up like how committed he is to this weird, kind of mostly forgotten Christmas movie. Yeah, kind of sweet in a way, actually. Yeah. I think it is too. That's why I I tend to be kind of endeared by these movies, at least these first two that've come out, in that like they're they're entirely disposable and kind of so so. Uh, by and large but his commitment is so clear like even now shines like goldie hahn who just kind of seems like well i'm happy to be with my husband and you know be in the movies again but he's like clearly just like so into this weird (laughs) largely mediocre uh series of christmas movies that you kind of have to be endeared by it i feel
0: all right we have a quick listener voicemail last week we asked you all is citizen kane really a masterpiece in the lead up to our conversation about mink which is about to begin so let's, uh, let's play a voicemail here from Bowie who had a response. Cause you know, we were curious, like Citizen Kane came out what 80 years ago and a lot of people have thoughts. A lot of people think that maybe it's a little, you know, overhyped. It's not that great uh, to today's standards, even if they say like, yeah, it was good for its time or whatever. But it. Uh we did have a response from Bowie and here is what they had to say. I love Citizen Kane to be fair. I did see it for the first time within the context of a film class in college, but I liked it so much that I watched it again on my own time a few years later. And I think any film like Citizen Kane that has something as iconic as a reference like Rosebud that's being talked about decades later deserves to be
2: considered a masterpiece.
0: All right, thank you for your voicemail. And yeah, that's that's a good point. I think Rosebud is pretty like even to people who've never seen Citizen Kane they kind of know what that reference is, so that's definitely the mark of something that has definitely had an impact. I think some people would say like, oh, well Citizen Kane uh doesn't deserve the impact it has. But I mean, what, what do you what do you two think? Like Abby, do, do you think Citizen Kane really reaches that level?
1: I mean, I I am not like the biggest Kane fan um that you'll that you'll find on the planet uh in terms of uh the Orson Welles filmography I I lean a little bit more towards The Third Man which he is in but did not write and direct um but yeah there's a lot about Citizen Kane that is I mean noteworthy in terms of cinema history um the the fact that it is uh talking about in in kind of a coded metaphor William Randolph Hearst is is important to kind of the history of Hollywood and how that system worked um there's a lot that it has to say about uh running for political office that is pretty prescient. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit in the Mank Review as well. And uh, from a technical aspect, uh, Greg Tolan's cinematography, I think, did a lot to sort of um, bring that medium into uh, into a closer space to where it is today, like really playing with uh, camera movement and light and shadow in a way that was pretty revolutionary for the time. So I think like even, even if I personally... Don't find it like the most exciting, compelling, like favorite film of all time. I think there's a lot about it that you gen- you, you den- definitely have to recognize as being important.
0: Yeah, I agree with a lot of that. I'm also not like a Citizen Kane is, you know, required viewing. I, I definitely think it's like in th- required viewing for any film enthusiast. Like you, you have to watch this movie to really get a frame of reference for that era and for film in general, film criticism and uh, all of that. I think a lot of the circumstances and ideas and context surrounding Citizen Kane tend to be more interesting to me than the movie itself, but it's still like a really good movie. I, I think that uh, the last time I watched it was like five years ago. And every time I watch Citizen Kane, I'm just like, I'm entertained. I find it very fascinating. I find it very prescient. And I find the cinematography and the direction really innovative for its time and because it was so yeah, I think some people like to say it's like the best film ever, but it's kind of become a cliche. I, I'm not really into that. It's nowhere near best film ever for me, but I definitely don't take any umbrage to people who do recognize that. Uh, where where do you stand, Will? Are you kind of where we're at or what?
2: Um, A little higher. I, I do think it's generally one of the great films of all time, but I agree with that, but it's not like one of my personal favorites. It's not like one I throw on all the time. I think I've seen it maybe three times in my life, but. I do generally think it's a really, really good film, and I, I do find myself kind of disappointed that it kind of gets boiled down to the academia of it, like the like kind of film aspects that get studied almost to death. I think kind of like you said, rob it of some of its entertainment and joy. That I think that's why people have kind of a checkered reputation or rep, uh, relationship with it. But um, yeah, I, I do think it's generally really, really good film. And uh, like you said, it's not one I like watch all the time. It's not like one I'm like, well. It's Thursday and time to watch Citizen Kane. But, you know, I, I do. Food. Yeah, <laughs> But it's do. I mean, every time I've watched it, I've gotten a lot out of it. And I do think it is uh, one of the pristine films for a reason, because it is generally, I think, a great film. And uh, I, I definitely have a strong relationship with it.
0: Before we get into the Citizen cane of it all with our main review, uh, of course, we got to plug our question for next week. And it's related to uh, this little thing we played at the very beginning, which is about the HBO Max thing. Now, HBO stands for... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so our question for next week's voicemail, uh, be sure to chime in on the Swell app if you want your voicemail to be heard on the show. That's in the show notes if you want to check that out. It's available on iOS and Android. And uh, yeah, so... We want to know, how do you feel about theatrical movies going straight to streaming services from now on? This is something that not only HBO Max uh, is geared to do. We are already seeing this with Soul. Disney is releasing Soul uh, straight to Disney+. Plus. They put Onward, the last Pixar movie on Disney Plus, not long after its release because the coronavirus. And it's clearly something that is trending. It's something that is getting to the point where these studios are getting more and more comfortable and they might start doing it. They might start doing it half and half. They might start doing some things are both in theaters and streaming. Some things are only streaming, which is already a thing, really. Uh, so how do you feel about that? Do you do you think the theatrical experience is on its way out? And then Abby, Will, and I are probably going to have a longer conversation about this next week, which I'm glad because I think we need some time to process. Uh, I think I, I, I have a lot of feelings and I kind of want to sift through them a little bit first. I know, Will, you, you cherish the theatrical experience. More than most people i know so I, I know that you have a lot to say so we'll we'll give that it's time next week but for now let's get on with it let's talk about Mank.
3: Mank? it's orson wells
1: of course it is i think it's time
3: we talk ready and willing to hunt a great white whale just call me ahab tell the story you know I hear you're hunting dangerous game. This is different. This is about something.
1: I've put up with your suicidal drinking, your compulsive gambling,
3: your silly platonic affairs. I gave you a second chance. How wealth and influence can crush a man. Are you hoping I might absolve you of such a personal betrayal? You made yourself court, Jester.
2: Nobody, but nobody makes a monkey out of William Randolph Hearst!
3: You pick a fight with Willie. You are finished. Mank. Mr.
0: Mankowitz Mank is a new film that is now streaming on Netflix. It's a bit of a festival favorite. It's a film that as soon as it started uh, making the rounds, uh, as it were, uh, people were saying this is this is the best picture frontrunner and so pretty excited to talk about it. I remember hearing about this one over a year ago too and being like, okay yeah, this, this is this has the makings of an Oscar movie because it is a biopic. Uh, It is sort of about show business, about Hollywood. It's about one of the, uh, like we said, one of the most cherished films of all time. And it's also boasting a lead performance from Gary Oldman, who's won an Oscar before. It's in black and white. It's from David Fincher, who's an Oscar darling for uh, really great films, his first film in, in years now. And it, it's got so many things going for it, Oscar-wise. I, I could keep going. I mean, it's got an, you know, a su- supporting performance that is right for marketing with Amanda Seyfried. It's got uh, a screenplay that's po- uh, posthumously written by Jack Fincher, the father of the director. I mean, there is a story behind this film. So that's a big reason why it's probably going to get a bunch of nominations, not least of which being uh, an Oscar, I assume, for its score with, from Trent Vesner and Atticus Ross, their fourth collaboration with David Fincher. And it it is a real triumph. I'll just put it that way. But what is Mank actually about? Abby, I want to hear from you. What is the setup for this movie? Kind of mentioned it, but yeah. What how how do people how do people sink their teeth into Mank?
1: Sure. Uh, so Mank is about uh, Herman J. Mankiewicz, who is the uh, the character that uh, Gary Oldman plays. A real life figure, iconic screenwriter of kind of the golden age of Hollywood, who was responsible for uh, writing the screenplay for Citizen Kane. Um, and I guess there has been some kind of uh, kerfuffle in recent years over kind of the balance of, of of the writing process between him and Orson Welles. That is not the focus of this movie. Um, the focus of this is more solely on on Mankiewicz and his experiences that kind of led him to writing that script and to um, kind of the, the the events that influenced him and his decision to kind of direct that uh toward portraying the uh the figure of William Randolph Hearst, who in the, the film is played by Charles Dance. So Hearst was a, a a former newspaper man who kind of moved into um Hollywood and also politics, um, had a massive house out in California that uh played host to Hollywood and uh political luminaries of the time, of which Mank was uh, a regular um, and the, uh, in, in flashback, the film kind of shows his experiences there and his sort of friendship with, uh, Marion Davies, who was, uh, Hearst's, um, mistress, who's played by Amanda Seyfried. She's also an actress. Um, and it switches between that as well as, um, the, uh, political candidacy of Upton Sinclair, who I believe was running for governor of California. Is that right?
0: Yeah, it was the governor race.
1: Okay. Yeah. I was, I was trying to see if I remembered that correctly. Um. And uh, the uh, the present day, which is him uh, writing the uh, the script for Citizen Kane, um, mostly recovering also from an injury after a car accident, so he's kind of bedridden for a lot of the film as well. Um, yeah, there's there's sort of a lot going on uh, story wise, and it can be a little hard sometimes to keep up with where you are in the timeline. Uh, the film does try by um, using. Kind of script directions that uh, that show up at the bottom of the screen, like a location and a time stamp, yeah, and, like a screenplay, yeah, like a screenplay, which is kind of neat um i I would say that those are a little I would like to have seen more of those than we got. <laughs> There's a couple <laughs> of instances where they don't show up and probably should have um but uh yeah i I think it's it's an interesting dig into uh, a pretty significant piece of hollywood history um i I've seen a couple of suggestions on Twitter, and I think it's it's probably a smart idea to kind of know this going in, that it's it's more about the circumstances, kind of social and political, surrounding the uh, the writing and inspiration of Citizen Kane than it is about the actual making of the film itself. Right. Um, I think if you go into it with that expectation, it might kind of take you a while to figure out what the movie is actually going to focus on.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a really good point, because I, I certainly, you know, wasn't expecting that to be the case, but I did think it was a smart idea, just because, like, that's, to me... If, a bit more interesting uh in theory uh but yeah so you know uh mentioning the rest of this cast uh we also have lily collins in here as uh one of the uh type the typist who's helping uh mank get his screenplay done and you know one thing too is that he uh we we always know it's the present because he'll have that cast on so there's like little things in the script like that that help keep us like up to date we also have arliss howard as we be mayor who is probably my favorite character in this, I have to say. Um and then we have some other like really uh great faces that kind of pop up from like Tuppins Middleton who plays Mink's wife to Tom Burke and Joseph Cross. Uh, really really strong cast. So so that said, uh you know, I, I do want to mention too, like you, you brought this up, Abby. Yeah, this this whole thing of who gets credit for the screenplay has really been an issue. It's been a dispute. Pretty much ever since like it came out, and I I kind of was like thinking, oh, that's maybe that's what this movie is going to be about. You know, maybe it's going to be more about Mink's legacy. Uh, it's going to be about how he had to fight with Wells for more credit, and it's barely touched upon in this movie, which is pretty interesting. And uh, this movie kind of to me feels more of like an adaptation of this article by Pauline Kale in the nineteen seventies which really advocated that, no, Citizen Kane is really the product of Herman J. Mankiewicz, not really Orson Welles. And this movie kind of brings up kind of lightly the the conflict between director and screenwriter. And that's one thing that I really wish this movie had been more upfront about or had had more to say about because uh, it does bring it up. And I don't think it effectively tells that story, in my opinion. Um, I have more thoughts, but I want to turn it to you. Well, you did briefly talk about Mink last week. You had the privilege of seeing it in a theater uh, yep. that you rented out. And mm-hmm. I know that I, that's certainly probably could have helped my experience because uh, what a movie to see on the big screen, I'm sure. But yeah, yeah. What, are, what are your overall thoughts on this one?
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm uh, sad that a lot of people won't have the chance to see it that way because I definitely think that helped, especially with the um, digital photography. I, I don't think it's perfect as it is in the black and white version trying to replicate film, but I do think it looks Agreed. a lot better. On the big screen because um, I've noticed this a couple times with different Netflix films, but it seems like their compression isn't quite great when they I don't know. I don't have the technical terms for it, but it seems like whenever they put it on their like service, it doesn't quite come out as pristine as it would like during their theatrical presentations. Because I noticed this as well yeah. when I went to watch um, The Irishman at home after I seen it in theaters, I noticed that the pre- visual presentation wasn't quite on par obviously it's hard to replicate the big screen experience but and
0: roma was like this roma was like this too in a big way yeah
2: yeah no i was gonna mention that as well because i saw um mank in the same theater i saw roma so um i haven't had a chance to see that at home but i kind of figured that would be the case there as well but um as far as the movie itself um i don't want to repeat too much what i said last week but i will say that I, I seem to be probably the biggest champion of it, uh, on this podcast, at least just because I do really appreciate what Fincher was doing here as far as, um, balancing a sort of tale of myth and uh, history and to making a film that is both, uh, championing the art of film, but also kind of battling with the commerce behind it and also challenging what becomes of the things that we love and also the chance to kind of find your stake in life and to basically prove yourself in a business that, uh, largely is capitalistic and also is uh, basically demoralizing and dehumanizing in the long scheme of things. And uh, I do know that that balance of recognizing artistry and also just seeing the cynicism has kind of uh, turned some people off. But for me, it just really worked. I think that balance uh, is very much a Fincher thing, but I I do know that uh, that's not going to be for everyone. So this may have a kind of more niche appeal compared to other Fincher movies, but I don't think Fincher needs to appeal to everybody. I think he just needs to make the film he wants to make. And uh, for me, at least it worked really well.
0: Yeah. I, I can't say I agree with all of that. Uh, I do. I do want to chime in about the cinematography stuff and say that to me in, on like my Netflix screen, this black and white just did not quite work for me. I, I don't know if this is just a me thing, but I thought the backgrounds weren't contrasted very well. Um, I think that like one of the problems is that Fincher, we, we know he really likes to shoot things in low lighting. Uh, but in this case, I think that like the atmosphere of this movie just was really dull and flat uh, for a black and white movie. And it made me wonder what this might have been like in color. And I have also uh, been curious if this would be alleviated in a big way if I had seen this in a theater. So uh, could be a missed opportunity there.
2: Or if he shot on film, I guess that's the other matter as that's well, true. I suppose. Yeah.
0: But, I- I do appreciate all the technical forces here. the fact that it you know there's period specific instruments that it's kind of like weaving and wobbing a little bit like Citizen Kane itself. It has kind of a loose time machine structure where we're going back and forth, which again, it's it's revolutionary for the time. But for today it's not. and so that is probably like the core of my criticism with this is that Citizen Kane is a great film because of how much it innovated, right? I don't think this film innovates in any real way. I did not find myself really taken by anything in this film. Really, just sort of barely satisfied by most of it. Um, from Gary Oldman's performance, which I thought was uh, definitely tricky to get into and and definitely ple- pleasant in a lot of spaces. He's giving a really technically good performance here. I I think the writing is his dialogue is is fascinating. But there, there was nothing about the performance that made me really believe this is Herman J. Mankiewicz, and th- there's a lot of other things like that. To the like, uh, j- just how this this film feels like Ready Player One, but for like 1930s Hollywood, where it's just references for the sake of references, and to the point where it to me, I worry that this is, and I, I think it's bearing out. It's, It's inaccessible to people who watch these kinds of movies, uh, who might see this on Netflix and tune out because they're like, this isn't for me. And I think that's a huge missed opportunity because I think, I don't know what Fincher's goal was making this, that's his decision. But what I would hope is that somebody would watch Mink and be like, wow, I've never seen Citizen Kane. I need to watch Citizen Kane. Or somebody who's like, I've heard of it, or like maybe I saw Citizen Kane, I didn't get it. But then they watch this and they fall in love with movies, or it begins a slippery slope of like getting into cinema in a big way. I think like if you're making a film about this era, that is almost like a responsibility that you should represent it in a way, um, whether it's glamorizing this era or it's taking a lot of shots at it, like Mank is, and I think rightfully so. I think that there is a responsibility to. Show like bring people into this world, not gatekeep them out of it. And so that's a big reason why I find myself really low on Mink, even though I'm kind of impressed with the technical achievements. Uh, I'm curious, Abby, uh, what what do you think of any of that, or if there's anything we missed. And I, I don't know if I'm being a little too harsh, honestly.
1: No, I think I'm I'm in sort of a similar boat. Um, I as a as a film critic, there's I engage with a lot of kind of Hollywood history based stuff. Like I'm a fan of You Must Remember This, um, and uh, kind of similarly oriented things. I actually, uh, a lot of the time while I was watching this, I was reminded of the, uh, the Ed Brubaker graphic novel series, The Fade Out, which, uh, I read at the beginning of the pandemic and just like devoured. It's very good. And is sort of similarly about like the, uh, the difficult split between like art and commerce and also personal demons, uh, faced by like golden age screenwriters, um, in a way that I, I found a little more compelling than Mank, which I'll get into in a second. Um, but yeah, you mentioned the uh, the cinematography, the the black and white being a little bit oddly flat. I found that kind of a weird sticking point, as well as sort of an echoey nature to the sound that I think was meant to be sort of a classic sounding thing. But the yeah. at least for the first few minutes, um, between that and also uh, Tom Burke doing his very best Orson Welles impression, which was good, but also was very throwing having seen him in other things and knowing that's not what he sounds like um mm-hmm. it it had kind of a weird music video quality to me for like the first few minutes which i mean i know venture has a background in music videos in addition to being a venerated director but it it felt a little bit odd for me for the first few minutes i did get past that but it was kind of jarring to start with um i don't know that that would have been the experience that i had if i saw it in a theater i feel like those um aesthetics and that sound might have played a little bit better on a larger screen and in a more uh acoustically um acoustically set space that kind of accommodates that a little bit better um but on a home screen it, it felt a little bit weird um i also think there's um i i think i think you're right in the sense that a movie like this does need to draw people in and give them a reason to be compelled by the story that they're getting and i feel like there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of kind of backroom politics and stuff going on that you sort of have to be a little bit knowledgeable about already in order to really understand what's going on. And like, I even have like sort of a basic understanding of what that stuff was. And I was thrown for a lot of it. Um, I also think it doesn't help that some of the supporting characters, some of the, the, the lesser known actor name folks who all play the, uh, the screenwriters all look really similar. So it's very hard to tell who's doing what. Um, and that becomes a problem later on. Um, so I, I think that's, that's kind of an issue. Oldman's performance, I think, is what actually threw me off the most because, uh, Mank is, I mean, he's, he's very intelligent. Um, he's very, uh, pretentious and I don't think he gets called out for being pretentious enough in the course of the movie. Uh, so often it feels like what will happen is that like in the flashbacks, there's a setup for like a scene where some kind of conflict is happening and Mank enters and says some kind of eloquent speech in which he references like Don Quixote or like high literature that we may or may not have read that he knows everything about. And then just kind of spouts off his wisdom and exits the room thinking that he's, you know, done this intelligent and, and high-minded thing. And it just, I don't know, it kind of threw me, it made him kind of an inscrutable character and a hard dude to really sympathize with a lot of the time. Um, I think there's there's really some interesting stylistic stuff going on in this movie that I really appreciated. But in terms of, yeah, in terms of the uh, the nature of it, really bringing me in and getting me excited about um, about that story, about that character, and also about Citizen Kane. I, I felt like I was a little bit at a distance here.
0: So, well, I want to make sure you have a chance to really like thoroughly respond because we, we've brought up a bunch of stuff and I have a feeling you disagree with some of it, if not all of it. But uh, I think the two chief things that Abby brings up there that I brought up to you is Gary Oldman's performance and then also kind of the story in general. Like uh, one of my main criticisms is that I just don't think there are things. Uh, you know, immersive stakes in this, like, you know, he's going to write the screenplay and uh, the sort of conflict into what made Citizen Kane. I I just don't think it's particularly interesting. And it's not a movie where as I was watching it, I was curious and fascinated by where it would end up. I found it all not for lack of a better word. I found it to be just kind of a boring story within a very fascinating time period. And and that really let me down. I wrote a whole thing on the site called uh, David Fincher's Mink, is an artistically gray love letter addressed to no one in particular, which really covers my thoughts on this. And well, I know you read it, so you have a pretty good idea of like where I stand on this. So I want to give sure. you a chance, lay it out. Uh, wh- what is what is your defense of this movie? If, if we're kind of coming down on it, what do you what do you think we're missing?
2: Well, um, I already mentioned this to you off the air, but I do think there is a kind of uh Disconnect as far as maybe the marketing is concerned, because I do think a lot of people are going to be going into this because it's set up to be like this is how Citizen Kane was made, like this is the story behind the greatest film, you know, like this idea of like telling the, the great story behind the great film, and I just don't think that's what we're getting here. I, I find it kind of oddly similar. To Capone from earlier this year, which I know, John, you, you considered not only the best of the year, but the best of the decade. Uh, it was like, like your an a lavish plus, race. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, but not that's really. Nobody watched that movie mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> thinking.
2: Um, some people did. But um, that's another film where it's like centered around a guy who's like supposed to be like 40 something. He's clearly portrayed older, uh, I think, for artistic reasons as well as thematic reasons. But I know that was a sticking point in both these films uh, that they're played by like 50 50- to 60 year old actors. But they are centralized to one location and because they're kind of stuck in their own headspace with Capone, it was kind of like he was his mind was receding. But uh, they're kind of caught in the spiral of like hazy memories and romanticizing their idealations of the past while also kind of confronting their whole lives, like particularly with both the films, like near the end of them, as we see, uh, especially at the end of um, Mank. But uh, I think with both these films, I just find them very compelling as far as exploring a balance between like recognizing the legacy or like the like myth of these people and like, kind of like passing that down while also kind of batting expectations to tell like basically like a kind of confrontational and ultimately pretty melancholy and heartbreaking look at uh what becomes of one's legacy, like at the end of their lives. And I think with Mank, what I find very appealing is that like, it's basically Fincher uh only not only um you know, respecting his father, you know, kind of in this weird parallel where he, uh, Orson Welles got the chance, you know, through RK films, RKO films to make like whatever he wanted to make. He got in a similar boat with uh, Netflix and he was like, I want to make my dad's film come to life, which is obviously I think very sweet. But uh, at the same time, I think he gives it that Fincher touch by exploring and kind of a like both somewhat ironic, but also kind of uh sincere uh, exploration of like, not really necessarily like, what is the process through which we make this great film, but like what becomes the man who writes and Kane and like, who is this idea? Like how do you get this kind of like cynicism to which you portray that film or like how you get that film to come to be. And like, it's not so much like recognizing like this is how we got and Kane, but rather like how do we become like what becomes the Hollywood system through which like a film, like a screenplay like this or a writer can be basically uh, demoralized and like kind of like thrown through the curve through a capitalistic society to a the point where he has to kind of like fend for himself and kind of make this stake in life. And um I know it doesn't really appeal to anybody or not everybody. I mean, but um for me, I don't know. I, I definitely think it's more entertaining than people are giving it credit for. I can recognize that it's kind of playing to a niche crowd as far as uh wanting to make a film about a writer writing a screenplay for a film that we don't really get to know. But I, I don't think it's really Fincher's responsibility to necessarily sell Citizen Kane. I just don't think that's really the intent here. I don't think he uh, necessarily is trying to make a film about like recognizing the greatnesses and kane but rather just exploring this completely flawed and complicated guy who may not necessarily be entirely sympathetic, but there is a lot, dig in there and there's a lot fascinating which i ultimately found to be the case like i think he's a pretty intriguing and heartbreaking personality i can recognize that because of his flaws and you know his insects and accessibilities that that, that's going to be the case for a lot of people but you know at the same time my tastes are my own (laughs) so i recognize that what i want out of the film may not be what everyone else wants out of it but that's not to say that i think this is like a all time great film, or that I think it's like a film on the same level as Citizen Kane, but um, yeah, because I would say like this is probably uh, maybe like mid to low tier venture just based on like, everything he's made, but I-, I do think it's a lot better than people are going to give it credit for. But I can recognize that because it hits a lot of the same beats and it's played to be in the same style as Citizen Kane, that people are going to come in with certain expectations. And uh, assume one thing out of it and maybe not really want to explore some of the more heady and complicated aspects of it. But at least for me, I mean, it, it really did work. Well, as we move into our final thoughts on this one, I, I do want to, you know, give
0: a little bit more extra time to things that I do like about this one. And then, Abby, you can chime in as well as we give our grades and everything. I, I do think the Amanda Seyfried performance and the portrayal of Marion Davies in particular is really strong. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it. that it's it's a, it's a delight of the movie. She gets a one particular scene with uh, Mank where they're walking and t- uh, like across, along the Hearst estate. That is just it. It made me feel stuff like it really did. And I think that that is like Fincher just really like gliding the camera uh, to a really great emotional resolution. And but then there's there's things like that balanced with I think Charles Dance woefully miscast. I, I think that his American accent doesn't really come through. I didn't. I never saw first in this role, um, and and I also think that you know Oldman, you know it's decent casting. I just I don't know what's missing from that role. I'm, I'm having trouble articulating what it is, but I have to once again bring that. It is still a really great script in terms of the dialogue. His lines are so quotable and so fun to remember and come back to. And then, last, I'll say if you, like you said, it's too, playing to a niche crowd, but if you do get these Easter eggs, they are pretty fun. There, there are some that are like historically inaccurate, of course, like you can pick those out, but you know, j- just this like loving, you know, affection for like all these little things, like the Marx brothers, like cooking in an office and you know, I particularly enjoyed a scene where, you know, it's kind of implied that like Shirley Temple and Lionel Barrymore are like helping Louis B. Mayer sell a very unpopular financial decision. It's like little flourishes like that. Like if you get the references, it kind of makes you kind of feel like, ah, yeah, I get that. That's fun. Um, but yeah, beyond that, I, I don't have too much else to say positive. Uh, Abby Olchesi, let, let's get into our final thoughts. Anything le- uh, else you want to bring up, positive or negative, that kind of sums up what you think of this one?
1: Yeah. Um. I mean, I do want to say that I think the the theme is really interesting. I think the idea of like spending time in golden age, Hollywood and kind of yeah getting a look at some of the the figures that if you're somewhat familiar with that period of time, um, I, I think that's interesting and, and, and kind of fun to like examine those figures a little bit more. Like I, I liked getting to spend a little more time with Irving Thalberg who, uh, up until this point, I just kind of knew as sort of a somewhat sympathetic character from, uh, episodes of you must remember this who kind of like shows up for a few minutes at a time and then like uh, tragically dies of an illness but uh it was it was interesting to actually see him like be a fully fledged character for once um and I also really like the score uh I think uh Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross I mean they've had a great run of several scores um I think this year between Mank and also the the score for Soul eventually when we get to that we'll have to talk about that too um are two of the strongest things that they've done in their careers up to this point. Um it's this one in particular, because they're using period instruments, sounds really different, but still kind of maintains some of the hallmarks, like some of the musical hallmarks that that you can recognize as this still being theirs. So in, in terms of that, standalone by itself, I think is uh it's a really interesting uh piece of of uh artistic innovation yeah. on their part.
0: Agreed. It's it's a banger just to listen to on its own. It's, like yeah, it's so good.
1: <laughs> Um, and also I would be remiss if I didn't mention that, uh, Upton Sinclair is played in a cameo by Bill Nye, the science guy. So like, that's, that's kind of spoilers. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. (laughs) It's like two seconds. I don't think you would. Yeah. I don't think you would know unless like somebody actually told you it's, it's very hard to actually tell that it's him.
2: No, I mean, I, I got that because, um, when we saw it at the theater, I didn't recognize it was him. And then afterwards when we read the credits, we're all like, that was, that was Bill Nye. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That was,
0: I thought it might be, or just somebody who really looks like him.
2: Yeah, that
1: was me as well. I was I was combing through IMDb at that, at that point, just trying to figure out uh, other casting bits and saw that in there and was like, whoa. Um, so yeah, overall, I think I would still give this a solid B. I think there's a lot of really cool stylistic things that are going on. I think there's some uh, kind of Hollywood history stuff that is interesting enough to kind of keep you engaged if that's a thing that you're into. If it's something you're really excited by, I'm sure there's probably even more that you can sink your teeth into. Um, yeah, I, I found myself kind of a little bit, uh, at a loss here, but that's, I mean, I don't think that's going to be everybody's experience. Um, if this is on your wavelength, I think people who, who are really into it are going to be really into it. And I think we've seen that bear out in reactions.
0: All right. And I heard you mention uh, Irving Thalberg and I, do you want to bring up? Yeah. That's played by Ferdinand Kingsley, who I forgot to mention Ben Kingsley's son, I believe. I think he's his son. Um, yes. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, right. Yeah. So- Very, very cool to see him uh, kind of, kind of a younger guy. I think he's like in his early thirties showing up in more things, but yeah. So for me, you know, I I think, I think what might like really capture how I feel about this movie is that on the one hand, yes, I do think it's nice to see a movie about screenwriting. You know, it's not something that we see a lot of Uh, screenwriters don't get a lot of attention. And if they do, it's, you know, things like maybe like what, like Trumbo, like it, it tends to be about things that aren't, screen writing. And something that's interesting about this movie is that it does sort of get into the wit and the character of people who write movies and who are playwrights, which is what he was before he moved to LA in the 30s. And you know, I I think the issue for me is that It's a movie that's sort of trying to undermine auteur theory, this idea that the director is not the sole artistic vision on a film. And I think to an extent that's certainly true. It takes so many people to make a film. But at the same time, I think this movie goes too far in the other direction where it makes it seem like the director is sort of just a sideshow or, you know, really secondary. And I don't think that's right either. I think that there is a balance. I think there are movies where... You really feel the stamp of a director. And I think Citizen Kane is one of those movies. I think that this movie is built on a very weird and disputed argument that Mank is like really the main, you know, arbiter of this movie's like, it's, on the one hand, yes, he's translating his life and we're seeing that, you know, he's taking his life and he's putting it into the screenplay. But that's really to ignore what Citizen Kane really is as a movie. I know will you sort of said that's not what this movie's about, that's not what this movie's about, but it is in a way it's it's sort of trying to tell us that Manx' experiences with Hearst. Directly were written into Citizen Kane. That is the main thrust of this movie, and I think that that's only half the story. And that's what frustrates me. I think this movie just kind of stops. I don't think that it goes to a place where I feel like I learned anything or I came away from it feeling like Fincher sold his argument well. And I think that this movie is a testament to what I think he's trying, like the opposite of what he's trying to say. So I said this in my write up. I think that this is actually a movie where the screenwriting could have used a stronger hand from the director in terms of the story i think fincher is all over this thing in terms of like how it's put together sure but i think there's a lot of mess there's a lot of jumble in this script that he didn't really for whatever reason come to grips with or was able to like fix um and i think that it comes through and so i i think like coming out of this movie i just i i didn't find myself really enamored by it and and i stand by what i said about this it is a responsibility in my view that you know if you're going to make a film with this heady as subject matter, yes, your first priority should be to make a good film. but that's the thing if you make it really good, then all that other stuff sort of falls into place where I think that people are going to come away from it and they're going to maybe open up their their love of Hollywood that they didn't know that they had. That's all I'm trying to say there. And I think that, I just think that Fincher didn't really, uh, I think he kind of dropped the ball there personally. Uh, so I'm a B minus. I recognize there's plenty of this that's really technically well done. It's not a bad movie by any means. I just think that it's nowhere close to where I think it should be. And uh, you know, I'll, you know what, actually I, I forgot. I wanted to mention one last thing kind of gets to the point of maybe I want to give an example. Basically, there is a scene in this movie, uh, or like really a whole like sequence where we see how the creation of propaganda newsreels are kind of what helps swing this political election for the studio. And they sort of play it like the person who directed these films, like feels guilty about it. And then something really tragic happens. And I remember watching, that, I was like, that doesn't seem right. I don't think that's true. Because First of all, it, it it didn't ring true. And then, second of all, it kind of felt like made up. And I was right. It was totally made up. And I think what bugs me about that is like the real person who did that, the point was he didn't feel guilty and he did, you know, end up doing what he meant to do without, you know, not to get into spoilers or anything. And I think that would have been better for this movie. That would have told me way more about what's going through Mank's head than all this dramatic stuff that's sort of made up to sort of put us in his head and make us feel like we're like we're connecting with his guilt and all of this. When I think that instead there's like a, a, Will, you kind of mentioned it, the cynicism of the system would have been better argued through just a little moment like that. So that's just one example of uh, probably many where I I could get into that. I think that this film just, it could have used some extra thinking in terms of the story and the plot and what it's trying to say. And I think way too much attention was put in other areas instead to this film's detriment. So yeah, sorry. B minus. Sorry for the long rant. Uh, Will Ashton, you get the last word. I want it to be a positive one.
2: Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, I can understand why people are very critical of the film because it's a film of contradictions in that it's a heavily socialist film that's made by one of the biggest capitalist ventures in the world. <laughs> and it's also made by a filmmaker who is try a champion like the, uh, like everyone involved with the crew, but he's also a very particular auteur basically in that sense. So I can understand. And amongst the other things, like obviously there's more to be said about that, but I'm just kind of talking the broad general things, just talking about the film itself. Um, I guess where I disagree and it, it, call, it calls back to your point that you were saying in that um, it's easy to look at this film and kind of compare it to another Netflix film like Trial of Chicago 7 and that that film is another film where we talked about like how the real life story itself doesn't necessarily mirror the reality of what happened. And I think in that film, I felt that was more of a detriment because that film, while it's obviously trying to be entertainment, it's also trying to be more of a historical recount. And that film is trying to recount the truth and try to say its own truth at the same time. And I think that film, because it was playing with those liberties that bugged me more with this movie, I didn't really feel that, even though I did have those thoughts as well, because um, I think this movie is entirely about the myth making and about like the idea of storytelling and about like what the person brings to that story. And also like exploring the ideas that come from therein, so I can understand why that's a sticking point. I can understand why people are upset about that. For me, that's, I think it's all part of this too. Like, I think that's part of the ideas that are being explored here. I think it's intentionally messy film in that regard, but at the same time, I I think even though the thematics are complicated because this character is such a complicated guy. um, I do think it really works as a piece of entertainment. Granted, this isn't citizen Kane. This isn't Ed Wood (laughs) either. I think it's not, necessarily going to be a film that glorifies cinema and that makes you see like the glory of Hollywood and stuff but I don't think that's the intent here and I, I think what he's trying to do here is a lot more thematically dense and a lot more intentionally inaccessible for that reason I can understand why that's not going to be a film that uh, meets everyone's approval and I can understand why that that can be a inaccessible film for broader audiences but I do think it is at the end of the day a fairly entertaining film because there are conventional beats established by jack fincher's screenplay while they kind of butt up against david fincher's sensibilities i do think they established the framework of a uh fairly uh traditional film and i, I do think they are kind of like the sticking points that build the house and i do think because his script is so witty and so thoughtful in its approach that it does work and I, I i do think of it as a loving film and a one that is uh Even against uh, some of David Fincher's uh, sensibilities, a fairly romantic and loving film at the same time, uh, mixed with some of his more cynicism and irony at the same time. So I can understand why that doesn't really meet everyone's game and why that doesn't necessarily uh, appeal to every single audience. But. Uh, what can I say? It worked for me. So um, I think I gave it like a pretty low A minus last time. Thinking back on it, I'm probably a little bit closer to a high B plus, but I can't undermine how much I really do like this film. And maybe over time I might uh, see more of the criticisms that you and Abby bring to the film. But at the end of the day, I I do think it really does work. And, um, you know, I'm sorry that you you two haven't felt that, but uh, I can't, can't help that. (laughs) I really did enjoy it. Hmm. Well,
0: uh, I feel like we could talk about Mink all day. We had a really extra long review of this one. So apologies, but uh, I think it was worth the discussion and I'm glad we could talk about it. I'm sure this won't be the last we discuss Mink. It's now streaming on Netflix. Uh, we didn't mention this, but it is uh, just a little over two hours, about two hours and 10 minutes. And yeah, uh, definitely give it a look if you are interested. There, I think there's a good chance you might enjoy it. This week's episode of Cinemaholics is brought to you by what the phalange a queer feminist friends podcast now you may have heard of the tv show the nbc sitcom to end all nbc sitcoms in the early 2000s friends which was f-r-i-e-n-d-s as it was uh perioded or however you say that that show was very influential and it could use a fresh take could use a couple of people who have something interesting, nuanced, and intelligent to say about how Friends holds up all these years later. And that's what Emily and Quinn are here to do with their show, What the Phalange? Now, to help me understand a little bit better on the comedy scene, because I'm just one person, I've never been a comedian. We thought, you know what? Friends takes place in New York City. It has comedians in the cast, I believe. So we should have somebody on who understands the New York sitcom world better than any of us. And that's why we have John Mulaney on the show here. John Mulaney, welcome to uh, welcome back to Cinemaholics. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this ad with us.
3: Thank you for inviting me. It's a real honor every time I get to visit Cinemaholics, which is more often than you might assume, but it's always a pleasure.
0: Now, John Mulaney, I, I know that when it comes to podcasts, you love Friends and you love podcasts. So this seems like the perfect kind of show for you, is it not?
3: Oh, it absolutely is. I remember being a fan of Friends as a very young man. And the thing that's very appealing about the show Friends is that everyone can relate to it because everyone has friends. Oh. And so that's a little <laughs> hook right off the bat to Hilarious. real viewers in. And this podcast lives up to that promise.
0: You're so funny, John Malini. And it kind of reminds oh, me please. of What the Phalange, which is also a funny show. Because what's fun about this show is they do have a retrospective on the fashion, the weird relationships, and some of the ridiculously problematic jokes, but they do it in a really fun way. And I feel like I'm five episodes in. I feel like I'm learning something this this show, from this show, Friends, and the podcast about Friends, What the Phalange. John Mulaney, how would you say this podcast compares to, well, your sitcom that you did in the twenty teens? I'm sure everybody remembers.
3: Oh, I'm sure. I, I don't know what sources you're listening to, because I think only I remember that show, but I think Friends uh, far surpasses that, if I do say so myself. And my favorite part about listening to What the Phalange is that they do it one episode at a time. They don't review the whole TV show at one time because that's not how you watch it. You have to watch them one episode at a time. And this podcast reviews them one at a time. So it's a time release kind of thing that makes it really easy to digest. You know what I'm saying?
0: I think you've broken it down perfectly. So you're going to find not just episodes with like, they don't just say like the title of the episode. They put their fun twist on it. So one episode, for example, is the one where we don't get 90s dating etiquette. And (laughs) the one with intergenerational trauma.
3: My favorite one, the one where friends did one thing. Thing right this is the one <laughs> yes i love
0: it you can find what the phalange a queer feminist friends podcast on apple Podcasts, spotify and so many other podcast apps i'm sure you love and with this show i, I think you're gonna have a good time like we have been and uh, as you deconstruct and diversify one of the most influential sitcoms of all time wouldn't you say john
3: Oh, yes. I think you're absolutely right. But don't take our word for it. Go give it a whirl yourself. It won't take that long, I promise. Let's get
0: to our next film. This is an intense one. This is really a personal film for me, actually. This is Sound of Metal, which is a new film directed and co-written by Darius Martyr, and uh, it's co-written by Abraham Martyr. It stars Riz Ahmed. Uh, Olivia Cook, Paul Rachi, I think it's Rachi, right? I forgot how to pronounce his name. Uh, could be Racy, could be Rocky, I apologize. Um, but this this film is about a drummer, played by Riz Ahmed, who is in a metal band called Black Gammon. It's uh, just a duo, him and his girlfriend Lou, played by Olivia Cook. Uh, They're both former drug addicts, uh, but they've been sober for quite a while. Things seem to be going great. They're on tour. Uh, But yeah, one thing when you're playing a lot of metal music, and if you're not protecting your ears, is that it can create hearing loss. And so as we see early on in the movie, uh, Ruben starts to lose his hearing. And you know, I'll say right off the bat, uh, well, first of all, this is now on Amazon Studios. Uh, It's also about two hours and 10 minutes, I think. I think they actually cut it down to just around two hours, Um, but I'm not 100% sure about that. But that's it. I... I watched this and, you know, I kind of going into it, I had a feeling this would create some moments uh, because I do have a pretty significant hearing loss. I I can't hear without hearing aids um, unless something is like being directly into my ears. It's a very different thing from what Ruben goes through in this movie. What he has is a lot worse and, uh, you know, what he would have to do to reclaim any sort of like hearing is extremely, extremely uh, invasive and difficult um, compared to what I've had to go through. But that said, you know, these experiences still kind of like, you know, I know it's used pejoratively, but it kind of triggered me a bit. Um, I'm not meaning like triggered in the sense of like, I think it's turned to this like online bullying thing of like, you should be embarrassed if you're triggered, but I'm using the actual like origins of that phrase, which is getting into like post-traumatic stress, you know, like moments of like when you first find out that you can't hear anymore or you're in the doctor's office and they tell you, yeah, sorry, your hearing is never going to come back. Sorry. You know, those moments, like those are really easy to botch. I've seen them botched so many times in films and that have sort of either made light of these things or turned them into like human, you know, some good news kind of like stories of like, you know, just like bare scraps of the situation. And so uh, I have to say from the outset that, from my perspective, Sound of Metal really gets it. There, there are certain things in here I quibble with quite a bit uh, toward the end of this movie, but by and large, this, this is definitely one of my favorite films uh, in terms of like capturing what this experience really is like. There's no way to understand um, for the same reasons that, like, you know, movies, there's no way to fully understand what people are going through. But the fact that this brings people who've gone through this so close to each other, it brings me closer to people who've gone through the like more fuller extents of this. I really appreciate it. So I just wanted to open with that because I, I just had to get it off my chest. But I will turn it over to you, Abby. Sorry, I've been rambling. Um, you just saw uh, Sound of Metal as well. What, what did you think of this one?
1: Yeah. Um, and Thank you for sharing that, John. I think that's that's really important. Um, I also, in my my day job at the the uh, KU Edwards campus, we uh, recently started a program, uh, like an undergraduate degree program for uh, for ASL, uh, as well as a few certificates in that regard. I, I promise it's not an ad; it is going somewhere. Um, but uh, one of our main faculty members for that program is it, like was born deaf and has like both deaf and hearing children, and so my experience is working with her. And then watching this movie made a really interesting um, like it was it was a really interesting experience. And there was a lot about this that I appreciated as well in terms of like the uh, the idea of like deaf culture and like the certain things that it got right. Um, In general, I think even apart from that, it's I think uh, The Sound of Metal is really good. Um, So Riz Ahmed is uh, he's a, a heavy metal drummer in a band with his girlfriend, Olivia Cook. And uh, early in the movie starts to have periods of just very severe hearing loss, like can hear very little and sometimes not at all. And eventually that that sticks. And he goes to see a doctor who tells him that he has had kind of uh, profound deterioration of his hearing and is is going to either need to learn to operate as a deaf person or get um get cochlear implants, uh, which kind of bypass the, uh, the eardrum and allow him to, to hear a little bit closer to like, to what he's used to, but it's not quite the same. It'll never be quite the same. Um, and he immediately wants to go the cochlear implant route so that he can go back to like, quote unquote, back to normal. Um, but the reality is that he needs to, um, kind of go through this, this process of loss and learning. And he does that at a, um, sorry, brain failure. Um, he does that at a kind of rehab, uh, community for, for deaf individuals, which is led by, uh, Paul Rachi, who, if you do any research on him is a fascinating guy, um, as a, in, in, in his real life. Um, he grew up, I think the hearing child of deaf parents is a, uh, like ASL interpreter and also, um, does a lot of work with, uh, like the ASL and deaf communities, I believe is a member of a deaf, like ASL using heavy metal band. So like he's, he himself is a fascinating dude. Um, and in this film, he is like wonderful and heartbreaking as, uh, the guy who leads this community who is, uh, deaf, but reads lips. Um, and so it sort of follows, uh, Riz Ahmed's character, uh, Ruben, as he figures out, uh, kind of what it is he actually wants for his life going forward. It becomes sort of a turning point for him and also a turning point in his relationship with uh, Lou, Olivia Cook's character. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot about this that is just really touching and human and real. Um, I think his interactions with, um, uh, Riz Ahmed's interactions with Paul Rachi are really uh, uh, intense, but also very, very uh, balanced and in in terms of like, performance like they they allow each other to kind of feed off each other's energy a lot and there's one particular scene about three quarters of the way through the movie that is just like a marvel of uh of, of both of their performances as well as directing and editing like it's it's one of
0: the best of the year
1: it's so good and it just and it's not even necessarily because it's like banging on walls like angry intense it's just it's very real and heartbreaking and it just like you feel exactly the emotions of everybody in that room. And it's, it's really, really incredible. I can't say enough good about it.
0: Same here. Yeah. One, one other thing I want to add to uh, before we turn it to you, Will, is the, the addiction in this movie. And like, I don't think I've ever seen a movie that bonds in such a meaningful way, especially the relationship between addiction and disability. And what's I think like maybe even genius about this film is the parallels it does. Cause it's risky. It's so risky to take addiction and what you go through with that and pair it with what disability is like and like making these obvious metaphors and analogies between uh, what you go through in something like rehab to being similar to being in, you know, a, a school for, like dealing with your disability, learning how to be deaf as they like write on a a board at one point. And one thing that makes me really love this film is that it doesn't fall into any of the tropes that I can think of. None of the major ones, like there's no, there's nothing here where it's like, you feel like this character is going to do X, Y, or Z, which we would typically see in this sort of film. I don't want to give things away, but I just found myself being like, man, this is, this feels authentic. This feels like what this person is going through. And is frustrated by. It, so I, I really appreciated that. All right, Will, we've we've both have talked. Uh what what about you? You were the first of us to see Sound of Metal and you recommended it to me in particular, and I'm glad you did.
2: Yeah. Um yeah, I mean I knew this was getting a lot of buzz at Sundance when it premiered, I believe, in January. Um I don't know if it was uh well I don't think yeah obviously you didn't get a chance to see it there, but um I knew a lot of people were championing not only the film but Rizomed's performance, which makes because, uh I think he's it, been it, gradually it didn't
0: proven. premiere at Sundance. It premiered oh, at it uh,
2: TIFF. Oh, sorry. My bad. Uh, but it was, was TIFF last year. Okay. Yeah, my bad. Then I get the film festivals mixed up. Uh, yeah. So this was uh, one that was definitely getting a lot of buzz, I remember. And then uh, it came out earlier this year or uh, earliest week. I mean, because they wanted to champion it for uh, Riz Ahmed's performance. But um, yeah, I mean, I think the any film that does empathize and allows you to see a perspective uh, that um, you don't often see in film or even art and allow you to get in their shoes and to experience that is, is obviously going to be very powerful and meaningful. And this is no exception. Um, and I think the key is obviously outside of direction, which uh, especially for a first time filmmaker, Darius uh, martyr, I think did a terrific job directing it. But um, I think the keys here are obviously going to be the central performance and then the sound design, uh, both of which I think are quite good. And I think they're the keys to what makes this film work. Um, Riz Ahmed, I think uh the performance that made me recognize his talents was a night of on HBO. But um, I think over the years, including like rogue one and um, you know, a few other things where like the movie wasn't great, like venom, like he stands out. And I think this is a great showcase for uh, being a good character study that shows his dramatic talents, particularly a film that so often could choose the kind of more cliched routes or the kind of more traditional routes. And his performance is very good about escaping those and finding the humanity. And uh, it's clearly, clearly one that he, um, spent a lot of time preparing for I believe he spent like six months learning how to drum and then uh, I think he also learned in that time how to do sign language so uh, clearly a lot of work and preparation and uh, commitment is put into it and at the same time I do really appreciate how much this movie does feel lived in and I think that's a key uh, component from uh, Derek Sanfrance who I believe was involved uh, as a screenwriter as well as maybe a producer I forget if he produces or was um, involved in any capacity uh, beyond the screenplay. No.
0: Darius Martyr uh, directed, co wrote the screenplay. Uh he was part of the story. Um yeah, I d I don't know who you're talking about. I think I think Derek Saint did work on the story, but I don't think okay, he was a that, producer. Yeah.
2: Okay, my bet. But I know he was involved and I know that this movie has a lot of his yeah. touches, especially like with um, a movie like Blue Valentine where you kinda like feel like the like raw humanity of it. Um, yeah, I definitely and got and the that. two of
1: them. It's worth noting that the two of them have a pretty long working relationship. I think Darius Martyr had done some writing work on uh, The Place Beyond the Pines as well.
2: Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think
0: I know this much to be true, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to watch that yet, but um, yeah. I mean, I did really like uh, uh, The Place Beyond the Pines as well. But um, yeah. I mean, uh, for me, I guess the one thing that holds me back is that I did think um the screenplay in the second half did kind of feel. A little bit more like set up or a little bit more movie by the end uh, in a way that I felt like the lived in moments throughout the first half and especially in the uh, the second act really stand out and shine. And I think that was where um, I find myself really taken by the film is that like that first uh, hour, hour and a half. And then by the end, I I wasn't I don't think it quite stuck the landing for me in a way that I think really made it like a fully great film. But I do think this is a quite good one.
0: Well, going into final thoughts, uh, I do have to disagree and I I did go back and forth on this. Um, I know I told you, Will, kind of like in real time that I didn't know how I felt about one of the pivotal moments um, toward the end of the film. And I think what really got this movie for me was, first of all, how I think there are two final scenes um, and I really don't want to get into detail here. One of them involves characters um kind of together in a room, going through something that I felt like was both inevitable. It was something you could kind of see coming, I'm sure, but it still really resonated. It it kind of reminded me of Goodwill Hunting almost um, in a really good way. And then that final scene, I think that final scene did nail the landing. Um just just speak, and I don't know if it will, you know, maybe it won't for everybody, but I can't say specifically, but there's a moment where this character does something and it's the end of the movie. And I've done that before. And I can't describe to you the wave of emotions you feel like the wave of like doubt and skepticism, but also relief. It's, it's really crazy. That this movie to me, pulled that off. So I, I find myself kind of walking away from it, even though I had some sort of like, I do have some sort of qualms about how, uh, some of like, to what you're saying, well, like it feels like movied in order for the there to be conflict. Um, I think that there's some weird things that it might paint the deaf community in a certain light that I think is kind of um, wrong, personally, and I'm not sure how I feel about it, even though I do think it serves the film narratively and thematically, um, based on that like addiction scenario. I don't think it's perfect, because I do think it, it might have a bad takeaway. Uh, but everything about this film, for me, sings, so I, I'm an A- for sure. Uh, what about you, Abby?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm in a similar boat. Um, and I know my, my experience and understanding of, of, of the deaf community, uh, is, I mean, obviously it's going to be a lot different from yours, John, but, uh, yeah, I think that, that turn in the third act is, I mean, the reactions to the, the choice that, uh, that, that Ruben makes, um, I think feel, feel accurate to what I understand of, of like deaf community feelings about, about that choice. Um, and I also like the, uh, I agree, that I think the final scene really does nail emotionally that uh, it's, it. I think, nails it emotionally in that it feels accurate for that character. I think it feels accurate to a certain lived experience. And it also, like script-wise, it calls back to a specific moment uh, that uh, that Paul Rachi's character mentions that I think kind of gives you a, a really interesting jumping off, like turning point for, for the character of Ruben. Like you get the sense that something something's going to change for him i think for the better at that point um and, and also i did want to mention that the sound design is really genius in that like it we're looking at a lot of repetitive moments um some of which like at the very beginning you're you're hearing fully and other times you're hearing less so or not at all uh that kind of reflect ruben's experience with with hearing loss i think it's really interesting that it switches back and forth um so that we get a sense of what it is he's actually going through um yeah, it's just it's it's a very well lived in movie. It's a very, I think, gentle movie. Um, I could see this same story or, or like a similar story being tackled by like a more mainstream filmmaker in a way that just makes it really maudlin and hard to watch and unpleasant. Like makes it kind of an Oscar cash grab sort of a thing. Um, but that's absolutely not the case here. It feels like a really genuine and and lovely experience so yeah i i think i would i would also be a similar i think i'll go a little bit higher i'm I'm gonna give it a solid a
0: all right i i honestly think that this really deserves a ton of oscar attention not just for the performances but for the sound mixing as you mentioned uh, i think like if people are ever like well sound editing sound mixing what's the difference I would turn them into Sound of Metal. I think that's a pretty good example, and I I hope it gets a lot of attention for that. And we'll finish with you, Will. Ashton, tell us all about your B-minus.
2: No, not B-minus. Yeah, I'm pretty much similar to where you two are. I mean, even if I'm a little critical of the ending, which I don't think is bad. I just don't think it quite hit me as hard as the moments leading up to it. But I can understand why it was such a resonant emotional moment. Um, And I do. I think, like I said before, I think all the performances really stand out, particularly as Abby was mentioned, uh, Paul Racy. I think even though Olivia Cook and Riz Ahmed are going to get most of the attention here and understandably so, I think his performance was the one that really surprised me going in and uh, out of this movie. So I definitely think his performance should be recognized in some capacity. But yeah, for me, it's a high B plus. So I I definitely liked it uh, very much as well.
0: All right. Strong recommendations from all three of us. Sound of Metal is now available to stream on Amazon Prime Video. And uh, like I said before, it's just it's just a little over two hours long. Uh, definitely an easy one to stream. And I think a lot of listeners will hopefully get something out of it, especially because I know a lot of our listeners are big music fans. And this is definitely a great film in that regard. Okay. Let's talk about Black Bear. Uh, Black Bear is a new kind of trippy indie dramedy thriller. I guess kind of hard to describe this one. Uh, Will uh, and I'd I checked this
2: out. I wouldn't call it trippy, truth be told. At least I wouldn't call it trippy. Yeah. You
0: wouldn't. Uh, maybe, no. maybe that's just more. That says more about you. I don't know. But uh, uh,
2: this no. was written and You're probably directed. not wrong.
0: <laughs> this is written and directed by uh, Lawrence Michael uh, Levine. Um, I don't know if uh, a lot of you have seen of his films. Uh, "Gabby on the Roof" in July, I think he did, and uh, "Wild Canaries." And uh, this is his latest in a while, and so. It stars Aubrey Plaza and what could be like a career high for her. Between this and like Inger Goes West, maybe. Uh also stars Christopher Abbott, who is on a tear right now. And then also um Sarah Gadon, who I, I, I don't recognize from I think I recognize her from some things, Emmy? but I don't know Did, what.
2: Do you see enemy? No. With oh, you didn't? I, I figured you I think so. Given how much oh, you oh, love oh, Jake Gyllenhaal.
0: Yes, yes, TV. yes. That enemy. Sorry.
1: She's totally. also she's been a... in a lot of uh, Canadian TV as well. Uh, she, I think, she's the main character in Alias Grace and has a okay. recurring role on Letterkenny. So I think she's yeah. associated more with like Canadian cinema and TV than she is with American stuff. But that's starting to change.
0: I, I know she's uh, she's in a couple Cronenberg's, right?
1: Oh yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. At least I think she's in Cosmopolis, if I remember correctly. But um, she's also in Eleven, Twenty Two, Sixty Three. I remember on Hulu, she was like one of the leads in that. Oh, I haven't seen
0: that one. So okay, uh, well. Uh, great to see her here, uh, an actress who hasn't really been on my radar, but I'm glad she is because I, I was really impressed by her in this. Uh, but OK, so we'll kind of walk us through it. What What is Black Bear about without without giving too much away, obviously, because this is definitely one of those movies. You kind of have to watch it unfold for yourself, really.
2: Sure. Um, yeah. So we follow the movie from Aubrey Plaza's character, who is a uh depressive filmmaker uh basically looking for the inspiration for her next screenplay she was also an actress at one point and uh basically she's at this point in her career where she's trying to figure out her next step uh both you know where she wants to go in terms of her films which aren't really getting a lot of notice or praise but they're pretty small films from what we were told uh as well as just kind of like figuring out where she wants to be in her life and she goes to this cabin this uh airbnb basically that's pretty much in the woods, very uh, picturesque. And she's caught in the middle of this uh, pretty intense relationship between um, Sarah Gadon's character and then Chris Abbott's character, where um, we don't we kind of learn what's going on between them as the story progresses. But it's clear that there are some tensions from the get go and uh, that things are not necessarily well, even though they're welcoming a kid into the world. And uh, yeah, so when she gets Abby Plaza gets into the mix, uh, things uh, definitely don't get better for there and then uh obviously the movie as you were alluding to takes a turn that i don't really want to necessarily spoil so that's kind of the core concept of Black. yeah
0: Bear. we we have to speak kind of generally but yeah kind of getting into like i think we can say like this film to me at least is really about in a weird way the writing process i, I don't know if that's 100 percent accurate but i really just felt like this is somebody really trying to get across like this is what it's like to make a movie, but in a very entertaining way. I thought,
2: yeah, real make.
0: Uh, yeah, <laughs> I suppose so. It's funny. Um, yeah, yeah, and th- there's also some like subject matter in here we kind of have to, you know, tiptoe around. But I know we've talked before about how uh, sometimes directors, we've talked about this a lot in Extra Milestone, actually, uh, actually where sometimes directors can really abuse their talent in order to get performances out of them. There is a huge undercurrent of that in this. Um, Did you pick up on that?
2: It's not an undercurrent.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's an overcurrent. (laughs) But, But what do you think? Do you think the film does a good job of sort of like laying out its case on all that?
2: Um, I think it does it well. I, I don't think there is as much to dig into the film. I think like what it's saying is pretty surface level in that regard, at least for me. Like, I think it's pretty explicit about what it's saying. And I think it does it well through the performances for Mobby Plaza and Christopher at it. But um, I, I I don't think it's like one that really made me like think a lot about it just because what it's saying is pretty apparent. But do you disagree with that?
0: Um, kind of not really. No, I, I think this is one of those movies that is up for interpretation and you can kind of read into it in a lot of different ways, you know, and, and, and that's kind of what I appreciate about it. I don't think there's like one clear cut uh, takeaway you can have,
2: I guess. I don't know. I mean, I, I think once you get past the, the main twist, of the film and you figure out what it's doing, I, I don't think it has that many surprises after that. And if anything, so? I felt not really. No, because I, I felt Plaza's like
0: performance is a, a huge surprise in a good way.
2: I don't know, because we've seen a lot of her performances like this. Like you mentioned, Ingrid goes west and several others, where she kind of plays these like multifaceted characters who are kind of uh, um, caught in some sense of inner turmoil that, that unleashes later on. I just feel like that's kind of becoming a niche for her. Uh, as well as um what was the, the one you really liked? Uh, Little Hours. Yeah, kind of yeah. a similar idea. But um
0: But I think this is a I think this is a showier performance though compared to those two.
2: Yeah. I mean, obviously it's going for a Cassavetes feel and I think that's yeah. intentionally she's evoking, uh, Gina Rollins, um, in that regard, in that regard. And, uh, obviously I think she's capable of doing that. I don't think this performance is quite on par with Ingram's West. I think that's still her best performance and probably one of the best performances I've seen from the past decade. I, I really think she was overlooked tremendously yeah, for that same. performance in the award season. But, um, yeah, I mean, I guess for me, uh, I, I do think it's well done. I think it's, uh, good is what it's trying to do but there's also kind of this weird like I, I don't know quite how to say this uh more articulately but it has kind of like a like film school thing going on towards the end where I feel like the ideas it's trying to say are kind of communicated fairly bluntly and with heavy metaphors that I, I don't think are bad I just feel like once that was introduced into the plot I was just like oh okay and it, it kind of left me a bit disappointed in that respect in that like I felt like What it was doing before that was a little bit more interesting, even if it wasn't quite as complex.
0: I I agree with you up until right after all of that ends. And I know we can't really talk about it. I wish so badly we could talk spoilers. But I think what happens right after what you're talking about, to me, saves this film and brings it all together. We'll have to talk about it off the air. But if there's one movie I could compare it to that we haven't already is, I guess, probably Mother um, as a film that I was certainly like, that was certainly on my mind.
2: I was thinking of queen of earth, the one that lives Moss made a few years ago. That's the one that I felt was more evocative of it, but I can see what you mean by mother. Yeah.
0: Well, I'll just say that there's a lot more <laughs> to talk about. Um, it's, just, it's just a tough film to talk about, but, you know, we mentioned, uh, you know, Aubrey Plaza's performance. Um, was there anything else that stuck out to you in a positive or negative light before we wrap up?
2: Oh, I mean, for me, uh, I, I know uh, Aubrey Plaza's performance is probably going to get recognized for a lot of obvious reasons. But for me, I, I really do love Christopher Abbott uh, as an actor. I think he's yeah, really one of same. our best working actors right now. And uh, if I, I mean, I knew like going in, this was going to be a great Aubrey Plaza showcase. So I guess I wasn't like terribly surprised about that. But once again, I just find myself being like, man, this guy is just so good Um, in a way that's like I can't really put my finger on because it's like his performances feel like very like natural and lived in but there's like such an intensity to them that um i know like from seeing him in girls like that was apparent and then seeing james white a few years afterwards i was just like yeah this guy's got that thing that like kind of sparked that you can't really put your finger on but it's like it's clear that he's like doing a lot of interesting things as an actor especially as a young actor that i I, every time he's in something my ears kind of perked up similar with a possessor um back in october i'd Um, love to see him
0: in a safety brothers film that would be incredible
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't see, um, what was the thing he did with George Clooney? Catch 22. I never got around to that, but, um. Yeah,
0: that was, I actually enjoyed that. I watched like five episodes of it and he's good enough yeah. for sure.
2: But I know that was one of his, uh, bigger lead roles and I've, I've been looking forward to seeing him do kind of more, uh, like kind of bigger projects like that. He seems to be still in the indie vein, which is fine. But, uh, if anything, I just feel like this movie is just another showcase where I'm just like, that's, that dude is just doing a lot of really good stuff and I'm going to keep following him cause he's, he's really intriguing me.
0: I got to say, you're you're probably going to be a lot lower than me, but I'm a B plus on Black Bear. Uh, B plus, B for Black Bear, even though the bear is kind of brown. Um, I I don't know. I was really taken by this. I'm not sure why. I was really sucked into it, and I do really like the takeaway, but I have a hard time sort of like, (sighs) I almost want to lower my grade just for the sheer fact that I think a lot of people aren't going to appreciate it for the same reasons. And uh, I feel like it's a film you have to talk through to really process it. And so, yeah, but that's where I stand. I hope people watch it. You'll at least come away from a really great Opry Plaza performance, honestly.
2: I think, yeah, I mean, I, I'm i not that far off. I, I, I guess I'm sounding more negative or critical than I really am. I just don't think I, just, I find myself kind of ho-hum about like the end of the film, because I think like when we introduced a twist, I was still with it. I just feel like the end just kind of relies on like heavy metaphors and like kind of overbearing like symbolism in a way that was just like, uh, I kind of wish it didn't do that because it felt kind of obvious ended in that way um but again we
0: got to talk about this yeah. off the air because I, I heavily want to repeat that um sure okay
2: no, that's fine i mean uh, you don't have to agree with me obviously and and you, you'd never really do sometimes but, that's the point uh, of the show yeah, We have to exactly. agree with
0: each other on everything there's no yeah. interesting discussions sure. yeah
2: but yeah i mean it's a little frustrating because we can't really talk about specifics without uh getting into spoilers but i, I mean i will say like i i do think it works like, i do think it's well done in a very like sundancy kind of way um but i i do wish it was just I, I don't know. I, it's definitely a type of film I like a lot. And I, I do really love like character films like this that are based in one location. And we just kind of like see the characters just uh, unleashing in very talky ways. That's just like the type of films I tend to like a lot. So this is no exception. Um, I, I don't think I'm quite as high as where you are, but I would probably give it a like low B. Um, but yeah, I, I like it. B for brown. Um, bear. Or black. Yeah, bear. yeah it's a black. Bear. No, um, the bear was
0: brown. I mean, I'm just saying.
2: Yes.
0: Um, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. yeah uh, I, I hope Abby has been closing her ears cause I don't want her to be spoiled on any of this. Cause uh, Abby, I think, are you planning to check this one out?
1: I am. Uh, I, I didn't pick up any major spoilers in your, in your discussion, but I, oh, I, good. I like all three of those performers. And I, um, I mean, in your, in your discussion, I like the movies that you're comparing it to. Um, mother especially has me super intrigued. So yeah, I'm, I'm really curious to check this out.
0: All right. Total Sundance movie for sure. I think it even, uh, it it got like a special like environmental award because they, uh, it's a very isolated film. It's only like one location, but the house where they filmed it it was like, apparently like fully like sustained by like green energy. And so they got like an award for that. And yeah, this is that kind of movie. I'll, I'll just put it that way. And it's short. It's a, one of the shorter films we talked about this week.
1: I do want to jump in and say that I think there's a really fascinating subgenre that's kind of coming to the the fore in recent years like between This and the Rental and Clementine and Queen of yeah. Earth and a few other Save movies yourselves. like the uh yeah the and Save yourselves as well. Yeah, like the the remote um uh, remote cabin in the woods. Everybody's really sad at the end movie.
2: I mean it's it's kind of like merging two different subgenres that've been coming out late. I can't really specify what the second one is without spoiling it, but it's basically kind of a fusing two different type of Sundancey kind of genres into yeah. one, which is interesting in a in a way, I suppose. But
0: scare me. That's the other
2: one. Oh, scare me. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah that definitely fits here too.
0: <sighs> Another Sundance film too. But all right, well, that is Black Bear uh, B from it Will B plus from me. Uh, last film. It's been an extra long episode, but we'll, this one won't take long. Uh, Godmothered, which is a new kind of fantasy comedy, sort of, uh, on Disney+. Plus. I say that because, well, comedies are supposed to make you laugh, right? Anyway, this Usually. is now streaming. It stars uh, Gillian Bell and Isla Fisher. And it is about a world where it's kind of fusing like uh, Enchanted with Elf, basically, where you have a fairy godmother played by Gillian Bell who grew up in a place called the Motherland where they get assigned to kids who uh, need a fairy godmother like in Cinderella. Uh, but as the years have passed, children have stopped believing in Santa. I, I mean, fairy godmothers. And so uh, in the verge of the motherland going away forever, Jillian uh, Bell's character, I don't even remember her name. Um, she, uh, with the help of June Squibb, uh, who is the easily my favorite character in this, uh, goes to the human world in order to help a kid who... Uh, asked for her help uh, your, uh, when she was younger, but now she's an adult, played by Isla Fisher. And you know what? She could use a little bit of Christmas spirit. I, I, I mean, um, true love? Um, actually, I'm not really sure. Will Ashton, what did you think of Godmothered?
2: Yeah, so similar to you, I I, I think I said this to you already, but it kind of feels like the type of film where it's like, I wish they were more specific about what film they ripped off because it feels like they wanted to rip off Elf and Enchanted at the same time. And it kind of felt like this weird mishmash of trying to do both in a way that felt like it was a type of script that might've been commissioned in like 2009 shortly after Enchanted came out and they were just like, yeah, we need kind of more movies like this. It did really well. And then this script came about, but it didn't quite find its groove because it's like, well, is too big of a project for the Disney channel, but it's like, not quite good enough for the big screen. And then when they need some films for Disney plus, it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. this fits right in that vein. So it kind of feels like a weird kind of business decision in that regard. And that um, it does hit a lot of very conventional beats. It, it I guess is trying to find its own originality by spoofing the like fairly godmother thing, but it's not quite the same as like Christmas or like Disney princess movies because those are a little bit more like, traditional and like they have a little bit more recognizable tropes and cliches. And this movie, like I I just don't really feel like godmothers or fairy godmothers have that much like lore that they can really dive into or kind of poke fun at. So like, we're kind of, like I said, met with this kind of weird uh, mishmash of trying to rip off elf and rip off enchanted. And I just don't really think it ever figured out what it fully wanted to do beyond the conventions. And I don't think it's necessarily terrible because I got a couple of chuckles out of this. I, I think there's enough talented comedic players in this to make it kind of fun and dear traditional fish out of water comedy sort of way. But it is a very forgettable film, as you are suggesting.
0: Um, I, I do think it's kind of terrible, but it's it's like the kind of terrible film that like, OK, you play it for like really little kids, like they're not going to be offended by it. They're probably going to think it's kind of goofy. And but that's the thing. It's like you have to go so young that I think that it's just not going to be a film that they want anyway, because they're too young for it. I'm not sure. Um, Maybe kids who like things like descendants. Right.
2: I guess. But like a lot of the comedy in this is like very much adult oriented, like in a way that's like, are you on drugs? Yeah. Right. Or like, like sex jokes and like, you know, like stuff at like the bar. And it's just like, that's a weird thing too, where it's just like, it's like kind of like trying to appeal to like moms at the same time. Like, I, I I guess that's like kind of the target audience for this is like a Disney movie that your mom will like more than the kids, which is it's a, a way to go. I mean, that's you know <laughs> that's certainly sure. one type of film to make, but um yeah, I don't think it's going to be a widely accessible film for Disney.
0: Yeah, I have to agree. Yeah, I mean, it's it's also a Christmas movie, which I guess we kind of mentioned. It like takes place because sure, yeah, it's like again, it's like the Elf stuff just keeps happening, and I'm like. Wah have a different idea i mean as much as i really love elf i I, it's just it's too beloved it's too like people know that movie inside and out
2: and disney plus already did that they did noel which is their ripoff of elf already so it's just like why are you doing it twice
0: (laughs) there are other movies let's go um yeah i actually thought noel was a bit more charming than this and maybe it's because Shirley MacLaine. um i I have to be honest
2: anna kendrick i mean i think yeah I, I just think Anna Kendrick is such an appealing presence that like, I mean, I wasn't crazy about Noel other, but I think I was a little bit more endeared to that than this, just because I think it knew what it was doing, even if it was just ripping off Elf. And this is just kind of more confused and by extension, which very is very confused.
0: I mean, it's got like what, like one musical number and it's my favorite things. And, and and I just like that entire sequence is like, why this song? Like this has nothing to do with
2: maybe it, it just doesn't make a, sense. Maybe it became public license or something and they could get it cheap. Yeah, I don't maybe. Know. but it's not even a Disney movie right like sound music isn't Disney right yeah
0: no it's it's like it doesn't fit I mean maybe it's Disney now based on like what they've bought at this point but um, that said I I do appreciate one thing though that it's not in New York thank goodness it's in Boston which okay that's where am form yeah sure
2: yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. you
0: know what I I give I give it a a nice little bump for that it is kind of nice to see Boston getting some love for once just saying cinematically
2: but I feel like we don't really get to see much of Boston in this. Like we see a little bit of it, a like little, certain yeah. key locations, but we're mostly just kind of stuck in the house and that news station. So it's not even like that's fun true. in that regard.
0: Well, and I do think there are some fun jokes about like the local TV stuff that I thought was very authentic. <laughs> and um yeah. that, that's where for me, the chuckles kind of happened. But yeah, it, look, I think this movie, you know, the first hour, it's, it's actually kind of fine. Like it's not offensively bad or anything. I just was like, okay, yeah, whatever. I think it's the ending, like the last like 30 minutes of this thing, especially are just so cookie cutter. So just there's nothing to it. Like I just found myself aggressively rolling my eyes at everything that's happening. The resolution, so hammy and just, it, I, I just found myself wishing I had just turned it off early. I probably should have. So yeah, I, I'm a C minus on godmothered. Um, you know, the tagline is be careful who you wished for. I think that should probably tell you everything you need to know about the creativity of this film. Uh, but what we'll, what we'll say you will.
2: Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not too far off. I guess I'm a little bit more positive just because um, I'm actually kind of inverse. Like I thought the beginning of this movie was terrible in a way that like it felt like the budget being lower than probably your average Disney film was apparent and that like, it felt like it had to stick to the script and they couldn't really improvise a lot during the fairy segments. So so that I thought was kind of annoying. But then when Julian Bell and Isla Fisher were able to play off more of the improv and like the fish out of water comedy way, I think the movie was a little bit more inspired. But at the same time, I think they can only really do so much just because it's like you said, it's such a cookie cutter type of Disney movie, while also not really being sure what kind of Disney movie it's trying to be at the same time that, they, yeah, like I said, there's only so much they can do. And there's a couple standout supporting characters like we get to see Jane Curtin, who uh, from SNL, uh, you know, having a great legacy. And then Stephanie Weir from Mad TV. Uh, it's always nice to see her. I haven't seen her in something in a long time. Uh, and then we also have June Squibb, who, I mean, I would never uh, complain about seeing June Squibb in a movie. And, you know, I, I kind of wish the movie was just June Squibb. Like, they had just cast June Squibb yeah. and Jillian Bell's part, because I think that would have been more fun. Oh, than, wouldn't
0: it have been? Oh, yeah. that would have been perfect.
2: But, alas, you know, I, I, I don't make those decisions. But I think, as it is for a Disney Plus exclusive, especially one that I get to watch from home and I don't have to, like, go out to my theater seat, I think it's like just below okay like i I think it's bad but not like you said in offensive or like aggressive sort of way i think it was even maybe like 15 minutes shorter because it's almost two hours for like no reason and i don't get that what that was about but like if it was just like maybe like 95 minutes 100 minutes and it just was like kind of aggressively fine throughout i think i'd be fine giving it a c plus but uh for what it is i have to give it a low c
0: all right c minus from me c from will yeah, I just just not a fan of this one. I, and uh, even even the fish out of water stuff was so uneven. It was like it starts off where she doesn't, she can't function, she doesn't know anything, and then it's one of those movies where eventually she knows plenty about the world. I don't know. Just
2: yeah, it's also like, like she's like trying to be like a kid, right? Because she's like younger than yeah, the other yeah. fairies, but then like she's like also an adult at the same time because you like know things. So it's like it's not even consistent in that regard, which is weird. Yeah.
0: Well, <laughs> as much as I'm sure Abby wants to listen to us. Uh, continue just dumping on a Disney plus very godmother movie I think that's a good place for us to leave it uh, godmothered is now streaming on Disney plus okay that is it for our show this week uh, I don't know if any of you have anything to plug uh, I just have stuff on the website right now you can read uh, my my review of mink um, I also have a review of lovers rock you can read now on the young folks uh, Abby do you have anything that you want to plug for the week ahead.
1: Um, I, yeah, I have a few things. I, uh, have my full review of Ammonite currently up on, uh, Crooked Marquee. I'll be reviewing the prom, uh, for this week. So you can keep a lookout for that. Uh, yeah. And I just last week, I can't remember if I talked about this last week or not, but I put up the, uh, uh, movie lovers gift guide for, uh, for the pitch, which is currently on that website. So if you're looking for, uh, yeah, if you're looking for, for gift ideas, there are a lot there. Um, I, I, I think they're all pretty good. Some of them I already own and can, uh, can vouch for personally. Um, so yeah, that's, that's all. I think that's, that's pretty much all from me. Uh, I also have another article, uh, that's currently in the, um, the print edition of the pitch, which you can find online, uh, on like their, their issue reader, uh, about, uh, movies to go into 2021 to kind of make you clear out the cobwebs of your life and, Um, affirm the future. Uh, That will be, I think, up on the website sometime in the coming weeks.
0: Excellent. Uh, What about you, Will? Uh, Anything you want to plug for this week?
2: Sure. Um, I actually wrote this and it got published back in October, but since it's pretty close to Christmas. I figure I'll share it now, um, especially since we're talking about Elf. Um, Over at Blend, I wrote an article kind of pitching what an Elf sequel would be, especially 18 years after, since we're kind of getting these uh, late in the game sequels from like Borat 2 and a few others that we're seeing. Like, could you make an Elf 2, especially with the daughter character was introduced at the end of the first movie and kind of exploring uh, if that's something worth pursuing? And uh, I think it turned out right. So I, I think it's a fun little article that is worth reading around the Christmas time. So I'll plug that one that sounds awesome
0: i hope we uh, can talk about that for our holiday special because i want to pick your brain um elf is such a great movie i love it uh john favreau again yeah just made so many so many good things the last 20 years all right that's it for our show this week from the internet california i
1: am john negroni
2: from the internet pennsylvania i'm wes
1: from the internet kansas city i'm abby olchesi
2: see you next time